so in John chapter 7, Jesus has a conversation with those people as they are upset with him for, as they said, working on the Sabbath day. And Jesus makes the point to them, well, you circumcise on the Sabbath day. You're fulfilling the law. He said, why am I breaking the law by healing someone on the Sabbath day? Many people over the course of John chapter 7 turn and stop following Jesus. They didn't like what he was teaching, and they didn't like the fact that he was refusing to become their king. See, the Jews were oppressed. The Romans were in charge. The Jews wanted a king, and they looked at Jesus and said, he can feed us, he can heal us, this man should be our king. But Jesus was there to set up a kingdom, but not the kingdom that they wanted. He wasn't there to set up his earthly kingdom. Jesus was there to set up rule and reign in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. As he told them of himself, as he taught them of the Father, as he showed them what forgiveness and love was and how there was hope and forgiveness for their sin. And so at the end of John chapter 7, the Bible's telling us some people followed him, some people have turned away from him. Jesus goes back up into the Mount of Olives. This was the place where he would pray and spend time. And then he comes back down in verse number 2 of John chapter 8. It says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. Now remember, it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's this big feast going on. There's this big celebration happening. And all the people are in Jerusalem there. And so Jesus comes back in and he begins to teach. It says, and he sat down and taught them. Verse 3, and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now picture this, right? It's festival time. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a time when the children of Israel are remembering their time as they wandered in the wilderness. They're enjoying lots of food. They're living in these little tabernacles or booths, really almost like tents in and around the city to remind themselves of what it was like back when they wandered in the wilderness. The town is crowded. There's people all over. Jesus has been establishing himself and who he is. He comes into the temple and he's teaching and there's lots of people crowded around. Imagine this morning if in the middle of our service we're sitting here and all of a sudden some people who held themselves up to be very religious people came marching in the back door, dragging a woman with her, and they set her right in the middle of everybody. This is what happened. And they begin to accuse this woman for something that as far as we know she had done, that she had committed adultery. And they said, we caught her in the midst of the very act of adultery. And it says in verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Smells like a setup to me. Jesus in the middle of teaching, he's giving the word from God that God had given him to share. When they refer to him as master, if you go back and look this word up in the Greek, it's didaskalos, which is the same word we get word teacher from. So they're calling him the teacher, and then they're going to give the teacher a test. Isn't that like us sometimes? Elementary school, right? But teacher, and we like to argue with the teacher, don't we? 
We don't want to listen to what the teacher has to say. We don't trust the teacher as we should. Instead, we want to test the teacher. And it really should be the other way around, right? It should be the teacher that's testing us and seeing what we know. But these men were coming trying to prove a point, trying to trap people with this question they posed to him. Now Moses says if someone commits adultery, they should be stoned. And that was correct. But it says in verse 6, this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. What could they accuse him about, right? Couldn't Jesus just agree with Moses and say, yes, this woman should be stoned. But remember, who was in charge at this point in history? It was the Romans. And the Romans, because they were in charge of many nations and many different people groups and people that followed many different religions, they had made a law that said, you are not allowed to put somebody to death for your religious beliefs without the stamp of Roman authority. That's why Jesus later on, of course, was taken to the court of Pilate. And the Jews couldn't just go and kill him on their own. And so, in a sense, they're trying to put Jesus in a box here. The religious law says this woman's supposed to be stoned, but the government that we serve today, the Roman government, says you can't kill somebody. So Jesus is either going to be in trouble with the religious people, ah, see, he's not teaching the Bible anymore if he says, no, we don't stone her, or he's going to be in, charge with, in, in trouble with the government in charge, with the Romans. Oh, see, he killed somebody, and the Romans said not to kill him. See, Folks, this kind of setup or this kind of trap, this kind of thinking is a place that the world often likes to put Christians in, where they try to pit them against something else and take two things that seem to be good, or at least the law, and try to put them opposite each other and get people fighting and, and arguing and confused about things. But Jesus... I'm so thankful he's God, and he knows all things, and he handles this situation very wisely. And there's some wonderful things we can learn this morning about how Jesus deals with sinners. Because the reality is, folks, we've all sinned. And I think as we read through this story, we can all relate in one way or another with some of the characters in this story. Think about them. We have the character, the woman, right? The woman caught in her sin. That may be like some of us this morning. Maybe you've been caught doing something and everybody knows it and it's no secret, you're ashamed about it, but everybody knows it and you feel like, well, what hope do I have? Maybe you feel like everybody's staring at you, everybody's looking at you, but what are you going to do? Or maybe you're like a character in this story who we know must exist, but we don't know anything about him. The man, right? I mean, they said they had caught her in adultery in the very act, Right? It takes two, right? Swimming is a solo, solo sport, bicycling, solo sport, but adultery takes two. Where is the man? Why did they choose to pick on the woman and bring her up and not bring the man? If they were following the Mosaic law, it should have been both of them brought up. See, they weren't so concerned about following the law as they were concerned about trapping Jesus and trying to put him in an impossible situation. So they bring this woman up and there's no mention of the man, but we know he must exist. And maybe some of you are like the man. You've committed sin. You know it. But maybe you haven't been caught. And you feel 
Maybe you're okay. No, I'm not in front of everybody. Or maybe you're like this group of religious leaders who likes to minimize their own sin and their own problems and point out the problems that everybody else has. Doesn't it make you feel better to do that? You know, I'm really not that bad. Look at all those people over there. And judge others and not be judged ourselves. It feels good to point out the problems in other people because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Like, well, we're not really that bad after all. I mean, look at all those bad people. Now, someone in here who's very spiritual might be saying, well, I'm more like the fourth character. I'm more like Jesus. But if you're like that, I'm going to say you're really like the third group, the religious people. Okay. Because <laughs> the reality is we're supposed to be like Jesus, but none of us really is. But Jesus handles things in a way that helps us understand for ourselves. If you're in sin this morning, you're like the woman or the man or those religious leaders. They all had sin, just different types of sin. But we see how Jesus deals with these different things, and it is instructive and helpful to us because the reality is, folks, all of us have sin of some kind or another. You might have a sin that everybody knows, or you might have a sin that nobody knows. Or you might be trying to ignore your sin and point out the sins of others, but it's all sin. So what do we do with sin? How does Jesus deal with sinners? See, the world, the the people around us might like to make us think, well, because you've sinned, there's no hope for you, right? You just need to be stoned and put to death and put out of here. Other people say, well, if you have sin, just keep it a secret. As long as nobody finds out, it'll be okay. Other people say, well, just minimize your sin and make sure everyone else knows how bad they've been. Kind of sounds like politics, doesn't it, right? Well, I'm not really that bad. I mean, look at how bad they are over there. We just throw mud at each other. And we all get dirty in the process. So how does Jesus deal with this situation? Well, we see, first of all, it says in the middle of verse 6, it says, as they tried to tempt him that they might have to accuse him, it says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Kind of interesting. The first thing he did was just pause. You know, when you get in a stressful, hard situation, you feel like somebody's trying to push you and stress you and test you about something, sometimes the best response is just to give it a beat, give it a moment. Pause for a second before you answer right away. The Bible talks about a quick answer not always being the best one, that a soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And that we should have a measured about ourselves before we respond to things. So Jesus writes on the ground as though he heard them not. Did he hear them? Of course he heard them, but he just ignored them at first. Verse 7, it says, so when they continued asking him, so they bring this up again. Again, remember, it'd be like I'm in the middle of my sermon to all of you and these people come in and start accusing someone right up here on stage in front of everybody. I mean, I don't know what I would do either. Hopefully I'd just stop and Start writing on the ground, because how do you respond to that? Imagine what all the other people in the audience must be thinking. I don't know what they were thinking, but I can only imagine. So then they continue to accuse this woman, and it says in the middle of verse 7, Jesus said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. 
Now, why would Jesus say this? Well, if you go back in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when some of the law is being explained and given, the Old Testament law said this, if you brought an accusation against somebody else that was going to result in them being stoned, then you had to be the one to cast the first stone. Why? Because you were saying to the family, this is a real and valid accusation. I'm telling the truth, and this person truly deserves this punishment. But if it came out later that you were lying, that you were making it up, that you were using this for your own devices and your own revenge or whatever else, that family could then come back and stone you. It was put in as a system by God to keep people from exercising authority that they didn't have or that they shouldn't have. And so Jesus says, if you're without sin, you cast the first stone. So what happened? And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience. See, Jesus takes their judgmental attitude that they had, their willingness to not look at their own sin and just point out the sin of somebody else, and he says, okay, well, whoever is without sin, you cast the first stone, and they are convicted by their own conscience. See, when we all take a step back and realize, as the Bible says, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, it humbles us, doesn't it, to realize our situation. It says they were convicted by their own conscience, and they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Why do you think they started with the oldest? Well, perhaps it's because the longer you live, the more opportunity for sin you have. I don't know. Or maybe it's because the older ones were wiser, and they understood what Jesus was saying, and they thought, well, he's right. And it says they left, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. Again, I still can't get over the fact that there's this large crowd of people that had come for teaching that day, that had come to hear Jesus, and after this dialogue or this back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious leaders walk out, and it's just Jesus and the woman and everybody else that was there to hear Jesus, and says, in the midst. And Jesus, when he had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Let me ask you a question. Of all the people there that day, who had the right to condemn this woman? Jesus did. He was the only one without sin that was there. He had the right to do it. And folks, Jesus has the right to condemn each and every one of us because we've all sinned. And the Bible says it this way, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus had every right to condemn this woman, and, but he looks around and he says, where are your accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. 
go and sin no more. There are so many things that we can learn from this passage of Scripture, but I've, I've got a list of nine for you this morning. It won't take me nine hours, don't worry. We can go through this list. But I think this is a, a very important list of things because wherever you find yourself relating this morning, if you're relating with that woman, you say, yeah, I've been caught in sin. Everybody knows about it. I'm, I, I wish everybody didn't, but I'm guilty and it's out there and everybody knows. It's just, it's me. There's some wonderful things from this story that can help you this morning. Maybe you're like the man. You're in sin, but hey, not everybody knows about it yet. There's some things you can learn this morning too or you're like those religious leaders willing to judge other people without first judging yourself. There's some things for us. I've got a list of you, of them for you here on the screen. Let me get you the first one. First one, judge yourself before you judge anyone else. See, these men, they came to judge this woman, but they hadn't dealt with their own sin. They hadn't asked forgiveness for what they had done. Take care of your own sin. The Bible says before you go trying to take the moat or the speck out of someone else's eye, deal with the beam that's in your eye, right? Deal with your own sin first. You're getting them really fast now. I don't know. Something's going on with the computer. Somebody's scrolling and scrolling. Can we go back there? There we go. Judge yourself before you judge anyone else. That's really simple to say, but it's hard to do. Because it's easier to point out the sins of other people because when you point out their sins, you're kind of done with it, right? That's their problem. When you judge yourself, you have to admit that you have a problem. And if we're honest, it's hard to admit that we have a problem, right? We look at ourselves and we feel pretty good about ourselves. But Jesus points out the problem that these guys had. He said, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. And they were convicted in their own conscience. They knew that they were sinners. Some people have surmised about what Jesus might have been writing in the sand. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some people say, well, maybe he wrote down the sins of them. Or maybe he wrote the names of their girlfriends in the sand. Or maybe they, he was writing the Ten Commandments in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. But they were convicted in their own conscience. See, I tend to think Jesus was just doodling. He didn't need to write anything because they knew in their heart what they had done. The reality is, folks, if you're honest with yourself... Nobody has to tell you you're a sinner. You might be fighting against it and not wanting to admit the truth, but the truth is, you've done wrong and so have I. I'm standing a couple steps higher than you, but it doesn't make me any more important than you. We're all sinners. Judge yourself before you judge anyone else. Let's look at the second one here. Put your rock down. We are so quick, right, to condemn someone else, ready to cast that stone, put it down. Some of us, we like to pick the same rock up over and over again, don't we? Somebody does wrong to us, we throw that rock at them. 
Maybe it's a spouse throwing that rock at their spouse, at their husband or wife. Every time that thing comes up, you bring up that same fault over and over. Let me hit you with this again. Oh, you only thought our relationship was good. Hey, bang. Nail you again with that one. Folks, forgiveness isn't like that. The Bible teaches us that when God forgives us, he puts away our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers it no more. You say, but I can't forget what they've done. You can choose not to remember it, though. It might still be in the back of your mind, but you can say, I'm not going to hold that against them. I'm going to choose to forgive them because God has forgiven me. Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You don't have to forgive them because they're just so worthy of forgiveness. You do have to forgive them because God forgave you. And if He's forgiven you, you can forgive them. But they don't des- you didn't deserve it either. I don't like them. You're not very likable either sometimes. <laughs> I'm not either, okay? We're, we're human beings. We've all fallen short. So put your rock down. Number three. See, I told you we'll get through this list quickly this morning. When it's all said and done, it will be just you and Jesus standing there. I mean, think about it. At the end of the day, the religious leaders left, and it was Jesus and the woman standing there. Folks, the most important relationship that you have is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Other people may accuse you. Other people may say things about you. And it might be true or it might not be true. But at the end of the day, the most important relationship is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the one that matters more than anything else. And the reality is this, if your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is what it should be, your relationship with the people around you will be what it needs to be. God will help you take care of those horizontal human relationships if you have the right relationship with Him. And the only way to have a right relationship with Jesus Christ is through forgiveness of your sin. Because the Bible is very clear. God is holy. God is holy. He is perfect. He is set apart from every sin. So the only way to get to God is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for your sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that in Christ we are all one. There's no male or female or Jew or Greek. We're all one in Christ. Doesn't mean... We're all equal in the sense of we're all exactly alike, but what it does mean, we're all equal in value to God. We look differently, right? We're different people. Tall, short, men, women. Yes, those are all real differences. But in Christ, we all have the same need of salvation and we all have the same opportunity for forgiveness. Some people live their whole life in shame and suffering and frustration because They don't understand that Jesus wants to forgive. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done and your life is over, what matters most is your relationship with God. And you're going to stand before Him someday and give an account. 
someday when your life is over, you're not going to give an account to me. And, and you might have been a wonderful church member. You might have been faithful and served and worked, and we just thought you were the greatest person. But if in reality your relationship with God is not right, that's who you're going to give an account to. Make sure your relationship with Him is what it should be. When it's all said and done, it'll be just you and Jesus standing there. Number four, let's see this next one. Jesus doesn't punish you because He was punished for you. Why did Jesus not need to punish this woman? She deserved it. She did. But Jesus didn't need to because He knew He was going to be punished for her. He was dying on the cross for her sins. All sin deserves punishment. That's the reality. There's no free passes. There has to be a consequence for the sin. It's just the way the law demands it. It's who God is. It's what He set up. But what God has done is He's brought in a substitute. He brought Jesus in to be your substitute. To die in your place. Did the punishment still happen? Yes. But it happened to Jesus. Now here's the sad reality, folks. Some people refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their substitute. They say, well, it's just between me and God. I'll deal with this. You don't want to deal with it like that. Because the only way that's going to work out is you being eternally separated from God in a place called hell. But Jesus is your substitute. Jesus doesn't come to punish. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he said that the world through him might be saved. Look at John 3, 17. Right? Jesus didn't come to punish you and condemn you. He came to bring salvation. But you must accept it. It's a free gift, but it's not yours until you accept it and receive it. Number five, Jesus forgives sin. Jesus forgives this woman, doesn't he? You say, well, where did that happen in the passage? Jesus said in verse 11, Neither do I condemn thee. Jesus forgives. You say, but I've... It doesn't matter. Jesus forgives. There's no sin too great that God cannot forgive if we'll ask him for forgiveness. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, cleanses us from, not some sin, all sin. You have sin this morning? Bring it to Jesus. He'll forgive. You have sin this morning and you hold on to it, say, no, no one can forgive this. You're not going to be forgiven, but bring it to Jesus. He'll forgive you. Jesus forgives sin. Number six, Jesus lifts condemnation. He says to this woman, neither do I condemn thee. There are a lot of people walking around. They say, well, I know Jesus has forgiven me, but I just feel ashamed and condemned. Jesus lifts that. Jesus takes that. If you have your Bible, turn over to, I don't have it on the slide, but Romans chapter 8. Let me just read a verse of Scripture here. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1, there is therefore now... No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, Jesus said, I don't condemn you. This woman walked in condemned, ashamed, beaten down, guilty, assuming she's about to die. She walks out from there forgiven, not condemned. Her accusers are gone, and Jesus has forgiven her. Why did Jesus forgive this woman? Well, I think we can see a little hint of her asking for it. Because when Jesus spoke to her, and he asked her where her accusers had gone, verse 11, she said, No man, Lord. She called Jesus Lord. She acknowledged that Jesus Christ was her Lord, that he was in charge. That it was his way and not her way. And we don't have a full explanation here. But when you see that word Lord used, you see people who are submitting themselves to somebody else. Honoring someone else. This woman was honoring Jesus Christ as her Lord, her Savior. Jesus lifts condemnation. Number seven. Jesus gives dignity. How did he give dignity? Well, he referred to her in verse 10. He said unto her, woman. You know, this is the same thing he called his own mother. To call a lady a woman was not a term that was derogatory. This was just a term of, of respect, like we would say a lady today. This was just the term that he had taken this woman who had come in as an adulterer, as someone who was wicked, and he acknowledges her as a real person. As someone who had value and importance to him. Folks, there are a lot of people today that feel like they're worthless. Maybe that's you. Feel like they have no value, no importance, no consequence. I was sad this morning as I stopped to pick up our donuts to come over here. Last Sunday I was picking up donuts at Shipley's and there was a man sitting there outside the donut place begging I helped him out a little bit last week went back today he's still there folks think about it I don't know all of his story but how far do you have to get that that's your life sitting there just asking people we know he needs help tried to help him he had a, a little track today with message from God on it, some Bible verses. He was reading that, sitting there. But to get to that place where you feel like you have no purpose and no value or your purpose doesn't matter, you're just there, just existing, trying to make it to the next day. Some of us, we've gotten ourselves really busy with a lot of things that feel good. Maybe you're making money, maybe you're living well and life is looking good, but your purpose really isn't much better than that man's because it's just for yourself. It's just so you can have a lot of stuff and life is comfortable. I mean, isn't that what everybody wants? See, this woman came in with no dignity. She had lost it all. She had lost it through sin. But Jesus gives it back to her because he forgives her. And Jesus will give you back your dignity because he'll give you a purpose. See, when you have a purpose, you matter. 
And you can get up and do what you need to do each day, even if to everybody else it just looks very simple and quiet and maybe no one even really notices what you're doing. But if you know it matters, you have a reason to get up and you have a reason to do something every day. And folks, God has a purpose for every single one of us. And if we'll know what his purpose is and we'll fulfill that purpose for our lives, he gives us a reason to live, doesn't it? It gives us dignity. But that comes through forgiveness, taking away our condemnation, and allowing us to live according to his will and his plan and not ours. God created you, and he created you for a reason. You didn't get here by accident. God is sovereign. But if you're here this morning, you're here for a reason. If you're alive right now and breathing, I believe God has a purpose for your life. Now, you may not be living it out, but God has a purpose. Jesus gives dignity. Number eight, Jesus calls her to a countercultural lifestyle. You say, what do you, I mean by this? Well, look at the end of verse 11. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. See, folks, we live in a society today that when someone comes in with their sin, we want to just pat them on the back and say, Well, it's okay. Here's a sticker. Join our parade. You just have an alternative lifestyle. And that's okay, because everybody can do what they want to do. Folks, there's only one way. And Jesus said it this way in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Folks, I want to do my best to love all people. Jesus loved this woman caught in this wicked sin. But Jesus didn't want her to stay in that place. He said, go and sin no more. He put her on a new path a new way of living. Folks, you may have come today and you're living away and it's worked for you or maybe it hasn't worked for you. Maybe you've been frustrated. Maybe you felt good about it. I don't know. But Jesus has a way for you to live and it's a, to live in accordance with his word and his way according to his will. Just because you were some way doesn't mean that's how you have to stay. Just because you walked in here one way doesn't mean that's the way you have to go when you walk out. Just because you've always felt a certain way doesn't mean that's the way you have to keep filling. Jesus comes and he makes all things new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that become, it's hard to translate that into our English language in a way that helps us to understand it, but it's something that is continuing to become. Because God wants to continually work in your life. Yes, when you get saved, your sins are forgiven. They're all washed away. But God is going to continue to do that work of change and growth in your life to help you become the person that he wants you to be. It's one of the reasons we have discipleship. Because if you're being discipled, you've trusted Christ as your Savior. But now you've got to grow. And it takes work to grow, doesn't it? My kids eat a lot of food. You should see our grocery bill. My wife spends a lot of time cooking and cleaning. I have to help her. It's not because she's not good at it. It's because we have five kids. And you're saying, yeah, see, that's your fault, you know. But 
But folks, it takes effort, doesn't it, to raise our children to what they need to be? Even if you just have one. It takes a lot of work. Late nights, early mornings, a lot of laundry, a lot of dishes, a lot of trips to the grocery store. Yesterday we were having fun at the park. We were having a good time. We finished up and she's not in here, so I don't, but I don't think I'll get in trouble. Ashley says, oh, now I got to go to the grocery store. I said, I know. It's, Shandy said, I know. It's, it's always a challenge taking kids to the grocery store. I said, why don't you leave your kids here? Go to the grocery store. We'll drop your kids off later. Enjoy a trip to the grocery store by yourself. And she went, really? I can do that? Ladies, you understand, right? When you take all the kids to the grocery store and they want everything that's on the shelf or they don't want the stuff that's in the cart or, you know, you, Shandy said, I, I can't even think when I'm at the grocery store and I got everybody with me. So I, like, I try to watch the kids so she can go to the grocery store and shop in peace. And it's amazing. Some of you ladies that don't have children, maybe you won't understand this, but if God gives you kids, one day you will. My wife loves to go to the grocery store now. You say, she must be a really boring person. She's not, but in comparison with just all the thinking and all the work that it takes to be a mother, sometimes to have a moment of peace at the grocery store can be a very enjoyable thing. Now, I'm not trying to get too far afield here because this point is what I'm trying to make. It takes change to, and work and growth to help our children get where they want to be. It's going to take change and work and growth spiritually in your life as God makes you what he wants you to be. Don't get upset and quit in the middle of the process. Too many people hit a hard situation in their life and they say, ah, but something doesn't make sense or I don't understand this or you get your eyes off of the Lord and on other people and some person says something or does something to you and you say, well, if that Christian does that, then all those people, and I'm just going to leave it all. We throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Keep your eyes on Christ. In Him, we are called to a countercultural lifestyle. We're not just to live after the ways of this world. He's called us to be a peculiar people, zealous unto all good works. So if you act differently than the world and somebody makes fun of you for it, it's okay. Because remember, at the very end, it's just going to be you and Jesus anyway. This world is going to pass away. Live for the audience of one. Him, Jesus Christ. Number nine, we'll be done. Sorry, it's not supposed to say God. It says go. I typed in and had a floppy finger and added a D there. It's supposed to say go and sin no more. Jesus tells this woman, go and sin no more. Now, one thing that's really interesting, the first verse that we read says, and Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives. If you go back into the Old Testament, into the book of Zechariah, there's a prophecy there that talks about the day of the Lord. Now, this day that we're reading about in John chapter 8 is not the day of the Lord. But there's a little bit of a foreshadowing and a picture of it. 
Because in Zechariah it says that Jesus one day is going to come down, on, plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. The mountain will be divided in half. There will be this great valley that stretches out. God is going to return to this earth and he's going to set up his kingdom and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And Jesus brings forgiveness. He's going to be in charge. He's going to be over it all. He is right now. People just don't realize it. But one day he's going to come in such a way that nobody can miss it. He tells this woman, go and sin no more. Jesus is looking forward to that future day. There's a day coming, folks, when there will be no more sin. And it will be when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, the same place where he was in this story. And he sets up his kingdom. The prophet Zechariah tells us about it. It hasn't happened yet, has it? But we can be confident that it will because God always keeps his promises. See, how does Jesus deal with sinners? He offers forgiveness. This woman turned to him. She acknowledged him as Lord. She went. We don't know what happened in the rest of her story, but we know how Jesus sent her, right? To go and sin no more a new life in Christ. So you're here this morning. Maybe you're like the woman. Maybe if, some, if you stood up this morning, you, you feel like in your heart, boy, if I stood up and everybody looked at me, they would know about my sin. I want you to know Jesus forgives. And because he forgives, we ought to forgive too. A church is not a place for perfect people. It's a place for forgiven people and people that need forgiveness. Jesus forgives. If you're here this morning and if you stood up, everybody go, well, that looks like a really nice guy. But inside, you know, I'm doing wrong or I'm figuring out ways so I can do wrong and no one knows about it. It's a secret. Come to Jesus. Confess your sin to him. It may not be public, but God knows. He sees your heart. If you're here this morning and you're more in the religious crowd, not in a bad sense, or maybe in the bad sense, right? In a judgmental state. You look at other people and, boy, you can tell us all the things that they're doing wrong. You're right in the midst of everything and everybody else's business. Judge yourself first before you go about trying to put others down because we're all sinners. Now, all of us sinners coming to Christ, as we go from here, let's go as Jesus sent this woman to go and sin no more. Be different in the power of Christ through the forgiveness of his blood and living a life that tells this world that I've been forgiven See, I don't work to be forgiven. I, I work for Christ because I've been forgiven. Let's serve him together. We're going to bow our heads for prayer, have a time to respond to Christ.